This is a Need 10 Media production. All right, welcome aboard, my friend. It's Nate Clayberg, and in this episode, we get to meet Noah Healy. He is someone with a profession we have not heard from yet on this podcast, and he not only has a, is a professional software developer, but more interesting to me, he says he's a recreational mathematician. What is that? Well, that is what we're going to learn today on this podcast. And again, on this show, we get to meet people from different parts of this country and around the world that have found themselves in interesting and maybe even unusual jobs. We talk about how they found their way into the work and how it brought them to where they're at today. Noah, welcome to That's a Job podcast. Thanks for having me, Nate. Well, before we get into learning more about recreational mathematics, I, I want to uh, get in the time machine and, and backlog to when you were finishing up high school or 18 years of age. Did you think this is the pathway you would be on or what were you thinking at that point? I really wasn't thinking about the future at that point. So I had been through a fairly advanced mathematics program in high school. There'd been several different initiatives to try to accelerate mathematical education in the town I grew up in, which is where I'm right now, uh, Charlottesville. And I had sort of surfed the wave, if you will. So as soon as I entered a grade, it was the year they were trying out something to, to skip people a grade. And then a couple of years later, they did it again. And then, you know, other things. And so I had already been going to classes at the University of Virginia for the previous two years because of that. And so continuing into the university was, was a very natural thing. I'm dyslexic. And so writing really didn't fit my, my capabilities. And so I went into engineering, basically figuring I'd write less in engineering. It turns out that at UVA, they have this honors track thing called Eccles in the in the uh, college and Rodman in the in the engineering school, but the Eccles has an extra little bump on it. Normally, in order to graduate at UVA, you have to write a senior thesis uh, as part of your major. But the Eccles program has a special major attached to it, where if you simply accumulate 120 credit hours, then they'll graduate you. And that's, that's the end of it. No senior thesis, no declared major, no anything. But the Rodman program has no such thing. So I actually wound up having to write more in engineering school than I would have had to in the college. Traveling through engineering school, I basically just wandered around, took classes with that looked interesting or with professors that I had before that were interesting. So I took sort of a smattering of introductory and graduate classes in pretty much every single field that they had and wound up gravitating towards nuclear engineering because it was the broadest. Uh, nuclear includes aspects of mechanical and civil and also with the added, you know, nuclear physics on top. But also because I came up with this weird idea in, in one of the classes that wound up being sort of sowing the seeds for what wound up being my senior thesis. So that's where my advisor was. So I just took classes there. So when you look at the engineering and you talk about, you know, not the, the writing piece was a challenge. Math was right there. 
did you look at other things other than engineering or was it you're good at math and that's that's something you you look at was that was that discussed or what was that thought or that's, that's where you just figured you should had yeah that's pretty much it i'm kind of bad at sort of literally everything else uh well that's okay because uh, because a lot of people are literally <laughs> bad at math and, and good at other things so it balances out right. yeah yeah i you know i'm prone to heat stroke and and you know i don't know if if this will be visual but i'm quite pale and and this is actually as tan as i get so you know like outdoor work uh my my dad was in construction he ran a business build houses and do additions and things uh that was not for me my brother does that he's also like a professional musician but the arts uh, i wasn't that great at those uh so yeah but uh, I but, can, but you found you found your niche in math and and just kind of found found that path. But uh, yeah, when you look at at being at University of Virginia and nuclear engineering and got through got through UVA, what kind of opportunities were you looking at, or where did you think you'd follow after that? Uh, well, there again, I kind of fell backwards into my opportunity. So I got out in. 2000 and it was sort of the peak of the dot-com boom and there was a local company that was one of the pioneers in the online social gaming space and their kind of CTO had been a member of the UVA Games Club. UVA has a very active board game club that at least half of its representatives are actually members of the community and I had been the president while I was there and so this guy had been basically losing settlers on to me for a couple of years and I was graduating, they were hiring and he just said, Hey, come on down, you know, interview. I know you're really smart because you keep beating me at, at board games. So yeah, I had taken a, a handful of computer classes, but it wasn't really my focus at that point, but I got the job and then had to get into the, the nitty gritty, as it were, of, of what it takes to program a computer and actually sort of finally learn about tuning algorithms, which was really fascinating. Yeah. You know, you, you're looking at what the end of uh, the 90s and early 2000s is when you kind of got into to, to this world. It probably wasn't even on your radar at that point, was it? You know, it, it's completely different now than it was, you know, back then when you're looking at really, yeah. and programming. Really, it wasn't. I'd been bounced off of computers here and there. We'd had a like Apple PC at home when I was a kid, and my stepmother was an accountant, and she she had a little sort of luggable that that she would use sometimes, but not that much. But computers, when they were brought up, were brought up in the context of graphics and games, and. You look like you can probably remember the 80s. The, 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 some of the games were pretty clever. The graphics were not anything to blow you away for the most part. And like I said, I was never really that artistic. And so this sort of you know inner call to go create the next Legend of Zelda or whatever, like that, that didn't fall on me. So I was like, well, okay, these, these are toys that make toys. That's fine for toy makers, but I'm not one of those people. So I can I can go try to find something that's actually useful to do with, with my abilities and see if there's anything there. But once once I was employed and 
it's it's an amazing experience to actually make something work a million times better. And that first job, they they folded more or less within a year of of hiring me. You know, they they, they it was the blow off of the bubble and. You know, they, they were spending way too much money, which is why they were hiring people who had zero computer experience right out of college. And, and as a result of spending way too much money, they ran out. And, and then that was the end of the story for that job. But in the meantime, while I was there, I actually made two different programs work quite literally more than a million times faster when, when it, you know, in their operation. Uh, one of which was was kind of an emergency situation, and the other one was uh, uh, what should have been a mission critical thing. It was the it was the parser for their website, so they could actually analyze what their customers were doing. And in fact, the week before I was laid off, I got the customer models built out. That where I found out that the thing the company was planning on making money off of was literally the thing that caused their customers to vanish and never return. So (laughs) so they were not going to ever be making money off of that with the customer base that they were presently attracting. Well, when you look at getting into that job and and someone listening to this and and whether it's that person or or you're listening to this and, you know, computers are, are now you know, it's prevalent. It's, it's everything that we're doing is, is computer involved nowadays. You can't say, I feel like you can't even call a company a tech company anymore because they're all tech companies, uh, more or less, it seems like. What, what were some skill sets you think back, not knowing you were going to get into a, a computer science world or programming? What were some things you think back, either you had picked up personally or stuff you had even learned through your engineering sciences or other experiences that you felt like was having an impact on your profession in, in, in doing the work you were doing? Well, the most important one for my education was engineering ethics. So one of the things that happened to me once I got there and had this job programming computers, which is something that I'd, I'd done, but I wasn't really you know an expert in, is that a codicil of professionalism is that you should have a body of knowledge that other people not only don't have, but, but effectively couldn't develop. And not necessarily because they aren't smart enough, although in some cases that would be the case, but simply because it takes a lifetime to develop it. And if they spent their lifetime developing that knowledge, they wouldn't be able to have whatever job you know they have. So for example, right now I have attorneys helping me. They're experts on law. I am not. Maybe I could become an expert on the law, but then I wouldn't have time to do the other stuff that I do. So as a result of that, I went out and read the foundational papers on algorithmic construction, computers, and so on. And that sort of deep learning and deep understanding helped clarify for me and kind of turn these things back into math problems and not so much like some kind of arbitrary creative process to try to wrestle with this box to get it to draw a picture for you, which is kind of the way that I had been exposed to computers before. You talked earlier about uh, coming through school and and the challenge you had with with dyslexia, but you just talked there about reading through some papers that that really you really were drawn to to learn. I guess talk through through that uh, you must have really been driven to want to learn that to, to get by what you 
what challenge you faced. The kind of dyslexia I have is actually an output rather than an input problem. So actually okay. reading has also always been very natural to me. I started reading fluently before I actually have really continuous coherent memory and all the way through grade school, high school, college, basically until I started my own business, uh, I was I was averaging 250 to 350 pages of pleasure reading a day wow. uh, for, you know, kind of like a quarter of a century there. You know, you're talking through, you know, just from looking at what, what you did through software programming and, and I'm going to go back to that and, and you leave the company that uh, comes out of the dot-com bubble and, and bust or whatever it is. And, but you found your way uh, it, continuing to be in that industry and continue to find some opportunities. I guess go deeper on that when you look at some of the video gaming places you were involved in. And also, yeah, was there anything out there that you were involved in that maybe that somebody out there listening is going to recognize? Possibly. So yeah, in terms of things that people might wind up recognizing, I, I wound up getting drawn back into gaming, but I've worked at a few different startups. One of them is something that you, that might be influencing your life. I worked for a company called RKG, which has now been bought by a conglomerate, but they were one of the leading actors in ad bidding and marketing tools. And I actually wrote them the rough draft of their like expert management system tool. So if basically you've ever done a web search, they very possibly, in fact, at this point, very probably uh, were involved in, in curating what ads got served up on that page. I've also worked for a couple of different companies that uh, manufactured and leased slot machines to Indian casinos in the Midwest. So for anyone who's been in an Oklahoma Indian casino, their games would be there. I myself, uh, at one of those companies, I was building out their tool chain for, for actual development. And at the other company, I was doing uh, data analytics and, and that kind of stuff. So never actually working on the games themselves. Yeah, you talked there about, about data analytics and, and data science, and that's something that I've really seen pop up here in the last, I don't know, you can say maybe less than 10 years, give or take. It seems like it's finally people are paying attention to it as far as there is so much data out there that's coming from so many different sources. And how does it all get organized? How do, who reads it? What do you actually do with the data, I think, is, uh, is a big thing. You know, you think back then, and I, I heard it on our last podcast, the lady, uh, Tara, that we had on, you know, she was like, you're good at math. You should be an engineer. Nowadays, you, you tell somebody uh, you're good at math. You've got a few different options out there. And data science is one of that. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. Well, that's another point where my engineering training actually comes in clutch. I've, I've used it several different times, actually. At my very first job, a, a sort of basic data analytics question came up, which literally was a question from my stats class when I was in engineering class, because there's something called the Poisson distribution, which is incredibly general and pops up all over the place in many, many different contexts. And the very cool thing about the Poisson distribution is that it only has one parameter. So if you know what that parameter is, 
the distribution that you get back will be the same, no matter what process is driving it to, to come in. Poisson actually worked for Napoleon, and he was working on the problem of predicting when people, when soldiers would get disabled by getting kicked by mules. And that's an odd stat to know, I guess. And, uh, right. Yeah. Well, but is. if you're trying to conquer Europe, it's, it's something that comes up and it's important. Um, but the important thing to understand is that whether you're talking about small sample decays in a radioactive sample or French infantrymen getting kicked by mules or buffer sizes in uh, random message queues on the internet, all three of those things are completely governed by the Poisson distribution. And so if you know that that's true and you know what the parameter is, then the underlying probability like quantities are a direct result of that. And once you understand a calculus concept called the Taylor series, you don't even have to like memorize the Poisson distribution formula because you can simply re-derive it basically from the Taylor series almost instantaneously. So that's one of those sort of cool things that are stats, calculus, and the real world actually all wind up intersecting with each other. So, you know, there is a, the data science and there's programs for it now, you know, in the work that you've done and the work that maybe even do now, you know, where do you see some challenges in, in all of this data and in the gaps of of the work that needs to be done with it or how to use it, that type of thing, or even some things I'm not even thinking about when it comes to, I just think of these mounds and mounds of data that get collected, you know, in just almost a nanosecond, I feel like, you know, what are some gaps and challenges you're seeing from that? The biggest one is that the social systems and economic systems that we have are built around a human scale of communication and understanding. And that scale is almost completely irrelevant to the scale that the machines operate on. Um, as you say, the machines are operating in nanoseconds. Human beings are doing a pretty good job if, if we're operating in you know, the, the hundreds of milliseconds. So it's a, it's a completely different thing. And one of the things that I see happening is that our existing systems are essentially crumbling in the face of this scale problem. So markets, for example, there's a lot of talk about the like political or economic consequences of the various market craziness or, or you know, other things that have been happening, not just in the last week, which has been crazy enough, but, you know, over years and even decades. But from a computational and, and signaling point of view, it's very natural to expect that a system that's, say, designed like your garden hose, if you were to plug that into a fire truck, it would simply burst at the seams. And, and you wouldn't even have to, you know, you don't have to check that. You just know that that would happen. Like the garden hose isn't designed for that. Of course, it would blow up. People sort of get very interested. What they want to know is like, okay, if I were to plug this garden hose into that fire truck, you know, or I just did it, tell me exactly where on the garden hose it will break. And I'll like, you know, put some duct tape on that and then we'll be fine. And it's like, that's not the answer. Like, I can't tell you where it's going to blow up. If I tell you, if I do somehow miraculously predict that this is the weak spot and you put duct tape on it, that isn't going to fix it either. 
Like we're at the point now where, where we've already plugged our systems into the mains. And now what we need to do is, is build out sort of infrastructure on top of that, that will actually be able to withstand the, the pressure and intensity. You know, I guess, is that a job yet? I guess we talk about, is that a job, but is that even a job yet? Is that something that, that people are pursuing or companies are wanting, or even companies are even accepting that they need people to do that work? So I actually have a market design consultancy. And so I'm, you know, turning it into a job, but you'll discover this, I believe, if you get into companies, like I said, I was working back office software, normal management practice has a hard time dealing with the, those sorts of things. And so whether it's a job or not, the kind of political and social consequences for you, if you get any of these jobs, those are the kinds of things, those are the fights you're going to be having. And if you can turn those things into jobs, then you'll be able to build a successful career at that company. And if you can't, well, you know, there's more fish in the sea. And if, if they insist on sort of using exploding infrastructure, then go work for their competitors because their, their infrastructure is going to blow up and then they'll, and then they'll be taken down with it. But, you know, I, I talk to high school kids and I talk to students about their pathways and, and you start looking ahead and, and we have them, you know, I actually have them go talk to somebody like you that's, that's done this work. And one key question that I want them to ask is, you know, this is maybe a job I'm looking at as, as being a, a data scientist, but is there other jobs I should look at, but what kind of training should I pursue? What, how do you answer that question to a, to an 18 or 19 year old kid that's, that's looking ahead to doing maybe a, a sphere of the work that you're in? If you're interested in data science, I'd say there's a handful of key areas. The first off is math, 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 and more math. There's basically no math class you shouldn't be taking. One of the things about mathematics is its intense connection. Um, so for example, fairly famously in the 90s, Fermat's last conjecture was finally proved to be true. And Andrew Wiles got a million dollars for proving that. But he did that by demonstrating that number theory and this completely different subject were really the same subject. And as a result of that, when you transform the problem of Fermat's last theorem into this other thing, it turns into this other thing that we already knew was true. So like my story about the Poisson distribution, if, if you don't have those things in the quiver, if you don't have the stats plus the calculus, then you're going to be missing the boat a lot, basically. The second thing is tools. And rather than sort of focusing on whatever tools are presently popular, Again, go back to the foundations, learn databases and how they work and why they work that way. Learn basic data processing tools like R, but more importantly than R, linear algebra, like regular expressions and, and other kind of string manipulation type things, as well as the neural net type processing that, that's going into natural language processing and, and those kinds of things. And again, learning from the ground up, because when you've got this mathematical foundation and you learn these things from the ground up, the ground of all of those things is mathematics. And so that's when you can start learning how they interact with each other at the base level. Because otherwise, you're kind of just like playing with a Lego or a Rector set 
And you might make something that's shaped the right way, but making something that actually works that's shaped the right way is going to be just luck and chance. And I've never been that lucky. <laughs> well, I got to think, you know, I can, I can hear the inflection of your voice. And I think this is what gets into you being a recreational mathematician compared to me, maybe me being a recreational golfer, even though I do get frustrations on that end. Uh, is that what you is that what that is when you're talking about, and we talked just at the beginning of the show, uh, uh, being a recreational mathematician, I think that's, is that where the passion comes in? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I have to say, I think that's probably necessary. I don't know how you could actually learn enough to be able to do these things productively unless it was your avocation as well as your vocation. I know a lot of people do just kind of suit and tie at nine to five it. And, you know, if your bosses are incompetent and they're sort of willing to pay for that, then, then more power to you. You know, I hope you get paid before your company folds. But again, in order to make something real out of something that's as kind of ethereal as electrical circuits and imagination, you got to you got to be grounded in something more than hope. Well, you know what, Noah, I've uh, I've I've learned a lot. I would say math isn't necessarily my thing, and I'm glad it is your thing. Uh, that, that's, that's what makes us all come together and, and makes this world hopefully run a little bit better. And especially some of those gap areas you talked about, uh, I invite you listening to this to, to go research that if you've got somebody that, uh, you know, is good at math, either as a student or maybe even as a young professional, and maybe they see some frustration in the work that they're doing and, and they want to maybe pursue something that, that Noah was, was talking about, uh, that I would invite somebody to do that. Cause Noah, I got to think. There's plenty of opportunities out there for people. Yeah. Well, you know, like I said, since since we're basically blowing up garden hoses these days, there's there's a tremendous amount of of work and opportunity. Some of it's a little on the pointless side. Some of it's going to be, you know, picking up scraps of garden hose and bringing them back to the guy that's going to plug it, you know, stitch them together and plug it back into the thing that's going to blow it up. But some people are building things that might even last. And, uh, and so, yeah, really open your mind and, and stay open to the possibilities. Cause like I said, I've kind of fallen over backwards into, into all my opportunities. No, I appreciate you being on the show. If people want to connect with you and learn more about your work, where can you send them to? So you can hook up with me on LinkedIn. I'm uh, Noah Healy, N-O-A-H-H-E-L-A-L-Y on LinkedIn. Also, I have a website for my marketplace ideas uh, called Cordisc, C-O-O-R-D-I-S-C.com. Well, thank you again for your time, Noah, and keep, keep going with the recreational math. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening and being on this journey, and please subscribe and share this podcast. It's called That's a Job. It's on Spotify, Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. The That's a Job podcast presented by Career Adventure Academy and the College and Career Discovery course. Discover the work you are wired to do. Now go live your career adventure. If you haven't done so already, hit subscribe to enjoy future episodes. Build your career adventure at nateplayberg.com. Production assistance provided by Bill Jordan voiceovers. Visit billjordanvo.com. This podcast is a Need 10 Media production.